one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And three gritted teeth. I was shoved back by these Syrian Islamic State guys. They didn't want to give me back. They really, really, really wanted to cut my head off and they really wanted to film it. Um, But they knew that I wasn't worth a turf war. At the same time, every other foreigner before me and after me had their heads cut off, put on TV and aired. Mm. I was the only one who got away. Which anyway. leads us to the it well. Leads it leads us, us to the obvious. Where does it? Is there an obvious place that that leads us to? To me, it does. It I'll leads be me to. By this. It leads me to your family. It leads oh, me to Christ. your mum and dad, oh, babe. It leads me wow. to. Wow, are you Catholic? I was raised Catholic. Yeah. Fuck me! I fucking knew it. <laughs> I fucking knew I'm it. I'm Buddhist now. But I was oh, raised Catholic. Oh, Jesus. Buddhist is just a great excuse for every other spiritual mistake everyone's ever made. <laughs> Michael Ware, what on earth could I possibly say to introduce you to or prepare you for Michael Ware if you don't know much about him? I, I heard a lot of conversations between him and Richard Feidler on Richard Feidler's excellent podcast, Conversations. Um, because they both live in Brisbane, they've done a, a number together and I've been just stalking Michael for years, begging him to come on my podcast and here he is. He will talk us through the birth of ISIS. I mean, that's part of it. It seems to me that the defining moment of Michael's life happened in Baghdad in 2004 when the jihadi leader Abu Masab al-Zakawi got a videotape to Michael. He chose Michael as, as a spokesman or a, a window between himself and the world. He wanted Michael to share this message with the world. And I don't think Michael's ever gotten over it, to be honest. He will certainly bring it up. He'll talk us through uh, just some incredibly challenging, I guess is the word you would use, experiences in his life. I'm going to try and get to the bottom of where his mental health is now and how he's coping with it. He'll deflect that in as many ways as humanly possible, but I think we do get there. Michael Ware is a a foreign correspondent, you know, one of those ones they make movies about. Michael covered the war zone for CNN and Time magazine, among other outlets, and he witnessed the birth of ISIS from very close quarters. In fact, without further ado, I'll let him explain himself to you. I'm Michelle Laurie, and this is the Nitty Gritty Committee. More than ever today, it is stories of the guts and the glory of life. I should also insert a small trigger warning, I think, maybe, at the top of this conversation. We, we talk about some things that are pretty hard to probably even listen to, let alone watch. You can watch them in Michael's documentary, Only the Dead, if you wish. Certainly, I wouldn't listen to this around kids. 
Hello. Hello. You can Hello. cough and gag and do whatever you need because I can cut it out can, if you want. Yeah, I can do a Jimi Hendrix right here, right now. <laughs> <laughs> Quoting someone else's song right here, right now. Yeah. Mm. How are you going? I want to die. How are you? How come? What's going on? I don't on? know. Nothing special. Well, lots, but nothing special. You, you just finished working. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just finished a show. At least but you have a paying job. I do. Okay. You're raising a lot of flags. My worst part is that I suddenly do have a paying job, and that's oh. the source of all my misery. That's great, isn't it? Yes. I'm running around the world for the next six months, and it doesn't <gasps> stop, and all I want to do is sit on my couch and oh. smoke cones and watch Game of Thrones. <laughs> That's yeah. all I want to do for the rest of my life. When did that change, though? That must have been like... Oh, when I came home. Yeah, from Iraq. Mm, yes. But was it immediate? Did you think, thank Christ, no, no, I'm on my no, couch? Or... No, no, I heard the call of the wild. Yeah, 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 yeah. I bet. Mm. We are recording now, by the way, Ashley. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, good. But I can cut so, out... So you're a professional journalist. We're on the record. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I'm wow. not a journalist, by no. the way, but... Oh, yeah. Oh, is that the out... <laughs> Because, you know, I'm actually legally and ethically exploring this very grey section of the of the code myself. And I intend on being very creative. So, yes, you're a vicious bitch from way back. I love it. No, not at all. I'll no, cut out your carnage. Don't worry. Woman. Oh, really? Yeah, of Re- course. Well, really? If you we want me to, to, no. No, not really. Okay. They should know. But what? You're going to use that on the record? No. We can if you want. It's up to you, man. Oh, Christ. I must admit, the first time I saw you on Australian Story, that's, oh, you know. really? Yeah, really? I thought, this dude's stoned, man. Oh, well, it was that. Yeah. That was, that was the least of it. Oh, this again is on the record. It's yes. on the record. I wanted to ask you about it. I thought I'll ease you in, but now that we're oh, here, no, well, let's, let's just be okay, here and go. record, yes. Yeah. No, I was, I was. I thought there was some gear going on. I was sober as a judge. No, I don't think. Yeah, I, I was thought praying every day. Yeah. <laughs> um. <laughs> you looked to me like a bloke with heavy PTSD who was self-medicating in. Yeah, no, no, seriously. When I came home from, look, because let's not forget, I, you know, I didn't do a seven-month tour. I didn't do a one-year tour. No. I didn't do two or three one-year tours. I did. Seven to eight years, back to back, no break, living there, coming back to Australia maybe one or two months a year, and that's it. I was there so much that they made me a a resident of the Republic of Iraq. Um, And that was just Iraq. Because let's not forget, there's also Afghanistan, where I went and lived with the Taliban. I mean, I went and became a Taliban for, you know, the best part of a year. Uh, We forget about that bit. Um... So, yeah, after a long period doing, you know, at our wars on terror, also at the Israeli invasion of Lebanon, the, you know, Putin's Russian invasion of Georgia, and, you know, as a great reward for all my efforts at the Mexican drug cartel wars, you know, when I finally came home home to Australia uh, for good, it, it, was, it was not easy. Look, it's it's an old story. I'm just nothing but one great walking cliche. It's every old digger's story. You know, once we come home, all we want to do is be back over there. You know? Mm. Um, and the homecoming can be harder and possibly more fatal than the war itself. Mm. Because you've got to fight to come home. Right? 
Um, and it's a fight you mightn't win. I remember there was a period there just a few years ago in the United States where there was an American serviceman or woman, but serviceman, killing themselves roughly every 90 minutes. Now, we've learned eventually, finally, after we all long suspected in Australia, where there's a similar thing. We've had 200 plus something top themselves. Um, all of which is just testament to the fact that, you know, yeah, the coming home can, can almost kill you. And I know that just like every digger. And that doesn't make me any different to any of them. And I consider myself privileged to be counted amongst that number. So what were the first sort of six months like when you got back to Australia oh, in turn? They were dark. <laughs> yeah. Howling at the moon. Um, yeah, I remember was, seeing you on, on Australian Story on the balcony of a unit in yes. Brisbane. And I'm thinking, what on earth are you doing there? Like it just looked like... It was so far from your Iraq experience that it looked crazy yeah, but, to me. But this is where I'm born and bred. Yeah, that's right. A, you know, that's the thing. And this is where I have blood and kin. But it's such a, like, it's a, it's a beautiful city. Me. I mean, it's yeah, the, you were there on the balcony looking yeah. at the water, the sunshine, everything. And it felt to me just like it was just, that was a massive adjustment it well, felt to me. Well, imagine like any kid who's coming back and going to Inogra Army Barracks or going to Randwick. Mm. Or, you know, in, in Adelaide with 7RAR. These kids have got to come back. And they take off their uniforms and they drive out of the base and they go to the movies or they go to the 7-Eleven or they cop in a queue next to you. Mm. And you haven't got a clue where they were 48 hours, 72 hours, 96 hours ago. Mm. And that's what it's like. So and it can be tough. It can be tough. Can you tell and me you know specifically, uh, specifically, specifically, how you were coping? Now I'm doing fine. No, but how were you coping when you got home? Oh, wow. We really want to flog that dead horse. I dog. really let's do. Just, let's just, you know, are we allowed to swear? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can do whatever oh, you want. Let's just fucking mine that vein of pain. Yeah. Like a bitch. Yeah. Um, because you seem so different now to me. Really? Yeah. That's good. Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate that. No, 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 no. It's, look, I'm serious. You've got to fight to come home. What kept you there for so long? I mean, I know it's an well, obvious me. question, but you're no, there for well, seven years as a yeah, journalist. Yeah, everyone asks me. Yeah. This. I know. It's a deep psychology thing. Look, there's, a, there's several answers to this. All of them are uh, elements of the same answer, but ultimately, I had no choice, right? Okay. I don't know why, but almost from day one after the invasion, because let's not forget, I was in Iraq before the invasion and I was in Afghanistan before that. But anyway, after the invasion of Iraq, this whole series of wars against the West began in that country and no one could access them. People were shooting at the American war machine, at the American soldiers, and, and the generals had no idea. The war commanders had no idea who was shooting at them or why they'd be shooting, let alone the poor, poor kids, the grunts, right? Mm. Now, imagine if some dodgy Aussie larrikin who's drunk and bumbling and falling through the war is the only one who gets the access to the other side. <laughs> For some, like, you know, obs absolute perversion of history, it's the only one. And for the next 
eight years is the only one that every side, because let's not forget there wasn't one war in Iraq, all right? Yeah. There was, at le- and I'm dumbing this down or simplify, oversimplifying this, but there was at least four wars in Iraq. One was the American war against the insurgents. These are the good old boys of Saddam's military, the guys who went to Iraq's version of Duntroon and who for 20 years were officers in the ADF. And all of a sudden, a foreigner invades, blows them away, and then says you have no pensions, no health plan, no, no superannuation, no nothing. And you can't join the new government, you can't join the new police force, you can't join the new army, you can't do anything. Go away. 500,000 well-trained, heavily armed men. And that's what we did. And for some reason, I became the voice. So that's the first war against the insurgency. The second war is the war that we now know as the war with the Islamic State. Because that began in Iraq. In the first week of August 2003 is the first time the Islamic State ever conducted an attack. That's where they were born. Well, Colin so Powell that- said just about two weeks ago, he, he reckons that he accidentally invented the Islamic State in, Absolutely. in the man- Iraq that's, because that's- he, he had a big press conference in which he named Zakawi. Yes, your, your sort of- February 5, before yeah. the United Nations Security Council, correct. And-, and at that time it was false information, but in an, it became... A self-fulfilling prophecy. It became real then. In a way, in a way. It still remained a fiction. I mean, yes, Colin Powell was right about one particular aspect, that this man called Zarqawi did make it to this camp that they identified. Uh Now, I went to that camp. I was in the fight against that camp. I was at the Green Berets as they fought their way up their mountain to get to that camp. He was right. That dude was there. So, yes, he was the first to ring the bell on, on the name of this guy called Zarqawi, this terrorist leader Zarqawi. But what Colin Powell didn't know then, and no one, no one could have imagined, is that out of the fire of our invasion of Iraq, this guy was going to create a new kind of holy war that would terrify even Osama bin Laden. No one could have predicted that. But I was there and saw the birth of that, and they let me in. Is it true the, that, that the, the other war, the other war in Iraq, mm-hmm. was the civil war between the Iraqis themselves, between the Shia and the Sunni, that that dude Zarqawi created, and then the fourth war was the Iranian war against virtually everyone else named above. So they're the wars we're dealing with, and they're all the wars that they let me into. So how could I leave? Yeah. Okay. When I'm the dude, this stupid drunken Aussie is the only one that they all talk to. Meanwhile, at the same time, you've got this group of Iraqis, these Iraqi, this family, drivers, translators, guards, whatever, some of who have been kidnapped and tortured because of you. When do you leave? Do you just pack up and go, all right, boys, good luck. If you're still alive in 10 years, let me know. Drop me a line. No, you can't leave till you take care of everybody. And thirdly, you know, at a certain point, that horror becomes your normal. And it's this stuff back here that freaks you out. Is it our lack of understanding of what's really happening that freaks you out? Does that freak you out when you get back? No, no, because you know what? Okay, I've dedicated an entire career to standing and screaming, pissing into the wind while I point at some human horror and tragedy and most likely a bloodbath. Into the wind and none of you can hear it. Every now and then, one of you will. And you know what? For me, that's a victory. If by story by story, one person back home hears me, that's the win. Right? 
because we're not going to change anything. Because at the end of the day, okay, my mission was to pierce the bubble of our privilege. Because let's face it, we won the genetic lottery. And folks, I've been around the planet. I've been to refugee camps. I've been to slums. I've been to zones of death for generations, like Afghanistan, other places where the killing just does not stop. And we won the lottery. We are this very, very privileged bubble that's bobbing along on top of the sea of humanity. We're not really, you know, if you're a Martian scientist trying to define the ordinary human, you know, the, the earthling, it wouldn't be our life. It'd be someone in a ghetto or a village, right? So we live in this bubble. My whole career is dedicated with a tiny little pin to pricking that bubble and making you all realise that there's something bigger and nastier and, and worse out there. At the same time, though, my family lives in this Western bubble. I now have not one but two kids in this Western bubble. So you know what? I want to preserve this bubble. So it's a contradiction for me. The whole time I want you to be aware that there's something much bigger and much darker outside and it's called the human race, but at the same time, I want to preserve this privilege for the ones I love. Mm. And you know what? That's, that costs. And we're finding that out with the Islamic State now in the Middle East and our kids in, in, in bedrooms in Melbourne who are becoming fanaticised. In bedrooms in Melbourne and Sydney. Right, they're becoming radicalized. You know, we've got you know, 100 and something kids over there right now fighting, and most of them dying in, in Syria. I mean, this is now, well, and as this is our new normal. This but, is and our also, new it is our Go new to normal. Paris. Go to Brussels, but as someone who's been there, I always think, um, you know, what, what do you have to tell people who have grown up in Melbourne and Sydney in these beautiful Western fortunate cities? who want to go and find their way to Syria. What do you want to tell them about the reality of that place now? Well, if I could sit down with one of these radicalised one kids, I'm not sure just how much, you know, an unbelieving white man can give them. Mm -hmm. But that said... Well, you've will, seen it. You've been there. Oh, they may crave what I've seen. Mm. I mean, American officers over and over and again, I mean, we were really... I mean, we were in the shit in ways you wouldn't believe. Um, there were days where none of us should have survived. And, you know, some of these officers will say to you, there's no greater weapon on a battlefield than a man willing to die. Because we want to go and kill our enemy, kill him and get back and get away. Now, imagine if you don't care about the getting away part. That's them. When I would sit down with the Islamic State dudes, right, one thing, they would often say many things, but one thing they said over and over, different places, different times, the great power we have over you is that you are afraid of death and we're not. Yeah. Now, sit down with a kid in Melbourne and try and de-radicalise him, but if he's already possessed by the power of that idea of martyrdom, <laughs> it's very hard. You can't negotiate with people who want nothing from you. I remember, you know, back in the horrors, um, I had a lot to do with getting kidnapped, uh, hostages back, you know, you know, Western and, and Iraqi. And depends on who kidnapped them. Were they criminals? Were they militants? Were they the Islamic State? 
you know, depending on who had them and when and where and how, depended on what chance, if any, you had of getting them back and would it take money or would it take this or would it take that. As a mate of mine, he's Navy SEAL, you know, he headed up the hostage working group task force in the US Embassy. He's a bloody good bloke. Mate of mine to this day. Anyway, sitting there one day, a certain nation's um, you know, aid worker's been kidnapped. I won't say who. He offers them help. They said, no, no, we're in contact with the Islamic State. We'll We'll, you know, we'll do it ourselves. Bloke comes back next day, sits on my mate's desk, puts his bum on my mate's desk, sighs. My mate goes, what's wrong? He goes, mate, there's nothing these people want. Mm. We're ready to give them money, machinery, con whatever they want to get this person, we'll give it to them. There's nothing they want. Three days later, they beheaded this dude on camera. And that can be what we're dealing with. And what we've got to understand is what I touched on before. This is the new normal. Even if we take back the Islamic State, you know, the, the offensive to take back Fallujah, the city of Fallujah is underway as we speak. Mm -hmm. The massive offensive to take back Mosul is still some time off, but shaping operations have begun. We don't have the partners on the ground to take back their cities in Syria unless we let the Syrian government do it. The Syrian government who drops chemical weapons on their own people and is now our new friend. But yeah, even if we do all that, these guys won't stop. Even if we take away their Islamic State, they'll revert to their core DNA, the way they began, the way I witnessed them. I watched the birth of the Islamic State. They began as a covert terrorist organization that has an apocalyptic vision and surrenders for nothing. That's why I knew normal. Knowing that every now and then uh, a terminal in Brussels is going to blow up. Every now and then, a cafe in France is going to get shot up and people are going to die. Every now and then, someone's going to go nuts in the US and a husband and wife team are going to shoot down their co-workers in the name of the Islamic State. That's our new normal. And having seen where that began and seeing how we f fell and tripped and flailed and carried on and just really missed the opportunities to address this in significant ways, um, you know, it's really easy for me to understand that that's the world we now live in. I think it's harder for those of you who are listening. Mm. Well, certainly I want to believe the idea that, uh, you know, they're losing ground, that they're being beaten back, that um, this is a, a, a winnable war from... I want you to believe all those <laughs> things too, darling. Yeah, You're not making it easy for me, Michael. Oh. Dear Santa, <laughs> I want to win a war against the Islamic State. I want, yeah, I know. Uh, I, I want know. to go back to the old normal, Michael. I know. Is it true that um, Osama bin Laden when or certainly just, his, yeah. his lieutenants or somebody actually wrote a letter to Zagawi in the oh, early days and said, can you... You don't know about all this? Oh, well, I yes. do know. I mean, I've seen your documentary. So oh, you silly girl. I... <laughs> <laughs> silly, silly girl. That they actually wow. wrote a physical letter to Zakawi to oh, say times. it's too much. You guys oh, are too yeah. much. Yeah, because Zakawi comes up with because you know, look, let's face it. Now we want to argue about you know how does the Labor Party and the Coalition deal with superannuation and negative negative gearing? They argue about how one deals with holy war against the West. Yeah, right. There's entire academic schools of thought on the various different ways to wage holy war. Right, and we get to the very darkest, ugliest, furthest fringe of it, and where it divides. Now, 
Osama bin Laden, who brings down the trade towers and begins the war in Afghanistan by, by provoking it, is a much more peaceful human being than the guy who created the Islamic State. The guy who created the Islamic State terrified bin Laden. And bin Laden didn't want him to have anything to do with al-Qaeda. There was a brief period for about 12 months or a little bit more, 14 months, where this dude, Zarqawi, and bin Laden agreed, all right, you can badge yourself and call yourself al-Qaeda in Iraq, al-Qaeda in the land of Mesopotamia. It didn't last long. Because mm. this dude, Zarqawi, the dude that I had dealings with, the dude who, the first time he ever made a propaganda, the first time this man ever made a video, he chose to send it to me, right? This is the guy who created the Islamic State. And he basically thought that bin Laden was a pussy. He believed that we should kill, you know, it's like even, even different types of Muslims who aren't our type of Muslim, we should kill them. So if you're a Catholic, we should kill all the Protestants. Mm. He believed in that. Bin Laden didn't believe in that. He believed that if in the process of killing one American soldier, you accidentally collaterally kill 80 good Muslims in the bombing, then that's okay. Bin Laden didn't believe that. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quinn's is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. He believed that. Everyone was fighting ultimately to create this one great Islamic state just like they had 700 years ago. And bin Laden fight, was fighting towards that as well. Just that bin Laden and the now leader of, of al-Qaeda believe that that's going to be at some future point. Zarqawi said, no, no, that starts, that starts now. The Islamic State starts now. And the Islamic State we have now is the second one. Well, it's the same one but in continuation. The first chapter... The first time that this dude, Zarqawi, created the Islamic State was in the Iraqi city of Ramadi. And 18 and 19-year-old American kids were sent in there and told, stop him. And they never had a chance. They were outnumbered. They were outgunned. They were, and they bled. It was so ugly that the Americans' own commanders, these kids' own commanders called it the meat grinder because we just fed American kids in there and they just got chewed up and spat out as meat. And so to have been there through all of that, you know, obviously helps you understand what's happening now and what it will take to turn this tide back and how long it will take. And yes, there will be a battle on the ground. There will be a battle of bombs and bullets, but the greatest battle is the battle of ideas and that's the battle that we're really losing. I want to stipulate at this point that you are, were certainly the first person I ever heard 
um, predict the rise of, of an organisation like the Islamic State. So when you say that, I want to know what your predictions are. I mean, how long do you think this is this is going to be part of our new normal? This is a generational warfare. We're already, what, going in been the beginning of the second generation yep. of this war? Because yep. I was there when it started in 01. I don't know how old some of our listeners are. Mm. I remember there was a kid in the US Army Intelligence way back in the day. It was like oh, late 03, 04. Anyway, we're sitting there and we're having this, you know, moment together where we're both going, you know, the world doesn't know how fucked we really, really are with this holy war and some of us, like you and I, are starting to. He goes, you know what? He goes, I tried to describe it to my mother the other night because every now and then the American soldiers could make a phone call home. He goes, and I was saying to mama, he goes, mum, this new holy war, he goes, for your, you know, for your generation, he goes, there was the, there was the cold war. So, you know, basically went from after World War Two in the mid forties until nineteen eighty nine. And he goes, during that war there was periods of high intensity conflict and there was periods of low intensity conflict. There was spy games, there was us sponsoring other countries, killing its own people. There was a, he goes, That's the war we're in now. And it's about year two. Mm. So now we're in about year fifteen or thirteen or but yeah, it's a generational war. You were actually abducted very early on by um, what a group of people who became the Islamic State. Yes. And very nearly murdered. Yes, while they're beheading everybody else. Yeah. Yes. On camera, yes. How and we're you... going to film my beheading with my camera, yes. And how did that not happen? I was rescued. Wow. Um, but not in some Hollywood sort of movie style with our guys bursting in and... You know, choppers and dangling from ropes. I was arrested by other bad guys. I was arrested. I was rescued by the Iraqi insurgents because this was a key part of Baghdad. This is the beginning of the Islamic State. This is the first time they ever captured anything in one way. I mean, that's a big call, but you know, let's figuratively let's imagine it that way. Mm. Here's the capital of Baghdad, right? You know, like Sydney, like Melbourne, massive town. I mean, five million people, right in the heart of it. Martin Place or what Collins Street or something like that or in America it would be Midtown Manhattan mm. all of a sudden this group out of nowhere captures Midtown Manhattan and all of a sudden this group of Islamic psychopaths most of them are foreigners who have blown in who started in ones and twos and now suddenly are an army uh, within mortar range of the US Embassy and within mortar range of the Iraqi Parliament and from now, they're going to start spreading out car bombs out of this center of the city. And the day that happened, I was invited to go in there to prove that this had happened. Because they displaced these Iraqi insurgents, these soldiers who, who were fighting to free their country. They didn't so who believe invited in Islam. You, who invited you in there? The soldiers, these Iraqi, you know, the Iraqi insurgency. They don't believe in Islam and this great caliphate. They were fighting to free their country. So Can they are the people we, we think of as the enemy of, well, of we our did, forces. Until we made a deal. Right, okay. Until we made a deal. Imagine a Chinese or an Indonesian tank is sitting at the end of your street. You want to go to, to football practice on a Thursday night and you have to go through an Indonesian or Chinese army checkpoint and basically ask for permission to go to the football field. Hmm. How are you going to feel about that? Hmm. 
And if there's a group of blokes in your neighbourhood who are blowing up those tanks and those checkpoints, are you going to tell those guys who the blokes in your neighbourhood are? That's who I came to know, the Iraqi insurgency. And they're the ones who took me in and said, these Islamic psychopaths have hijacked the war and suddenly taken over the centre of the city. And someone needs to tell the world because we can't. And so that's why they took me in. And that's when I get grabbed and they're getting ready to cut my head off and they're trying to use my camera to film my own beheading. And it took just a moment too long, just long enough for my friends to come and say, you can't kill him, he's our friend. And through gritted teeth, I was shoved back by these Syrian Islamic State guys. They didn't want to give me back. They really, really, really wanted to cut my head off and they really wanted to film it. Um, but they knew that I wasn't worth a turf war. At the same time, every other foreigner before me and after me had their heads cut off, put on TV and aired. Mm. I was the only one who got away. Which leads us to the... Well, it leads us to the obvious... Where does that... Is there an obvious place that that leads us to? To me, it does. It leads me to... It leads me to your family... It leads oh, me to Christ. your mum and dad, oh, babe. It leads me wow. to... Wow, are you Catholic? I was raised Catholic, yeah. Fuck me. I fucking knew it. <laughs> I fucking knew I'm it. Buddhist ne- I'm Buddhist now, but I oh, was raised Catholic. Jesus. Buddhist is just a great excuse for every other spiritual mistake everyone's ever made. <laughs> You're so fucking Why Catholic. is it Catholic to ask? You're either Catholic or you're Jewish. I no, I'm not Jewish. Tell. Why is it Catholic to be thinking about your Bless poor mother? Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. <laughs> Remember, O oh, most loving Virgin Mary, that it's never been known that anyone who asked for protection. Yes. Yes. Mm. Tell me about your family during oh, all the, this period of time. So, they're fucking happy and healthy and thrived in this wonderful environment. What the fuck do you think? I think that... You think that I hurt them. Right, okay. I mean, who do you think pays the ultimate prize for the stuff we do? Well, not what you do. No. You make people laugh. <laughs> you paid lots of money for it. Make me laugh. Go on, funny lady. Make me laugh. Huh? Go no, on. No, I don't want to make, make you laugh. Make me giggle. Giggle or die. I want to um, know what your mom, mom thought you were doing with your life. Oh, I want to know. she thought I was dying. She clung to every word of the news. My sister oh. wouldn't watch a word of it. I would come home after a year. My sister had no idea where I'd be. Did they accuse you of things? If, no. I, if I were them, I'd want to accuse you of like... Would you? Is this your... What, if, what is wrong with you, Michael? Is it your ego? Why do you have to do these things well, and go yeah, to these there, places? Yes, there was questions like that, but they yes. also understood that, you know, there was... You know, there was incredible stuff to be done. And look, let's face it. I mean, for fuck's sake. This was an incredible moment and convulsion in global history. Yes. And it certainly is the war of our generations. And... For some perverse reason of history, there is this idiot Australian from the wrong end, from the arse end of Brisbane, (laughs) who for some reason, I swear to God, for some reason, the fickle finger of fate chose this kid from Capera to eventually end up knocking about like a pinball amongst the forces of history in the great war of our time. And loving it. Yeah, yeah, I did love it. I mean, I'm watching your documentary, which is finally on iTunes, right? Only the Dead, it's called. And for so much of it, and you're very self-aware about it. You're talking about it, about Mm. being this young man in this insane environment 
and loving it. It's it's an incredible opportunity to be part of history. Well, there was that, but also, like I said before, it's what you get used to. I mean, eventually the history fades and the, the you know the adrenaline fades very early, and the this and the that and the oh, you know, I'm on to all that fades, and all you're left with is the blood and the pain and the suffering, and that's the bit that becomes the normal. It's also rock and roll as fuck to oh, be driving around. Oh, oh. Come on. Look, Driving look, around Baghdad with your helmet a t- on. We got a TV show and us, baby. Yeah. Look, you're going on tour with the greatest rock band on earth. I mean, yeah. you ever think the drinking, the sexing, that anything is better than when you are a whisker from death? Mm. I mean, the global press corps, when we go inverted commas on tour, for us, that's going to a war, mm-hmm. right? We have every, there's sadness all around us and everyone is dying. We could die, but I tell you what, you're going to drink, you're going to party, you're going to fuck your way through it because you know what? You never know when you're going to wake up dead. Mm. I mean, there was moments where I could have died in my bed. Once when my house was car bombed, another time in another house when my bedroom was shot up. Die in your bed. It's so dangerous you could die in your bed in your sleep. So how do you think you're going to party? Mm. I mean, it is... It's everything you imagine with a rock band on tour, but the stakes are just so much higher and everything is so much more intense and everything is so much more electric. And it's an experience that I think I'd like to relay to people somehow. Yeah. And to let you know that that's how, that's how the first draft of history is written. Yeah. I mean, I, I love that. Is that fucked? I don't know. But I love hearing you talk about that. And I kind mm. of, I, 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 I want to feel that. I'm kind well, of... I, want to make it, I want to make a show that lets you feel that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you did. You made a documentary that really well, was amazing to me. I made a documentary that made you want to kill yourself. No, but that no, was the point. That was the point. It because didn't... you know what? Yeah. That documentary came out of 300 hours of tapes that I filmed in yes. my time there. There wasn't a happy story in those 300 hours. I mean... There's laughter and there's this and there's... But that was the story that was in those tapes. I also want to tell you another story. Yeah, sure. Because, well, it's the story of this generation Mm -hmm. and the way we did this war. Because you know what? You know, let's just go back and look. Because, you know, we need to talk about these things, these wars, these convulsions in history, these these things that are changing our society, these things that, if you want to be self-interested, are radicalising Melbourne kids and setting them off to drive tinnies to the Gulf. Yeah. After Vietnam, 1972, you know, they started pulling the troops out. 1975, you know, the North Vietnamese take the South. The last American chopper leaves the American embassy in 1975. We then take a deep cultural breath. We breathe in and we don't exhale until 79. When we start making films like Coming Home with Jane Fonda, Apocalypse Now, uh, Deer Hunter, we go on to start making films like Platoon and, you know, Full Metal Jacket and on and on it goes. That part of our conversation has only just begun. Hurt Locker kind of began. Uh, American Sniper, despite all its flaws, you know, has begun that conversation. Mm-hmm. And that's a conversation that only now we're going to start having. And that's a conversation that I very much want to be a part of. And in that conversation, I hope that you get to feel what it was like to be there. Certainly, um, by the, the way you finished your documentary, I thought was uh, very powerful. I thought with so much uh, gear that you had, so much video, so much experience, so many stories, I'm thinking, how, how is he going to wrap this up? What is the point of this going to be? 
And do you mind if we talk about the way it finishes? It, no. Could it spoil no. it for people spoil who haven't seen it? it? Yeah. No. You close it out by making us as viewers watch a man die. Yes. Now, to slowly, me. Slowly. 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 Yeah, horribly. Really slowly. Yeah, you hear him. Right. This is not the way it happens in the movies yeah, or, the, or the computer games it. or I anything. I want you to feel every minute of this dude's death. This is a man yeah. heaving for breath and yes. a man fighting to live. Yes. Correct. Correct. And you know what? We made it harder for him, didn't we? Yeah. We even laughed at him. Put a towel on his face and he had to suck air through the towel. Anyway, so it's what you could call a small war crime that I was a part of. Legally, in that courtyard, I am not a combatant. So under the rules of war, I have no legal responsibility. Morally, however... I could have, you know, I couldn't have saved that dude's life. Maybe I, you know, I couldn't have saved that dude's life. Later that night, the brigade surgeon saw that footage. Said, "I don't know if I could tell you if I could save that dude's life, but I would have taken him on my operating table, and he would have been on that table in like eleven minutes, if you guys had only called for help." Wow. This is a surgeon. Mm-hmm. And he goes, "And you know what? A month ago, one of our rain kids had the exact same wound, and guess what? I saved him. Um, and we rather." You know, these are 18, 19, 20-year-old kids taking pleasure in this dude's really slow death. Mm. Um, and that's what I filmed. And but you know what? They're taking pleasure, but there's also, there, there, is, there are also boys saying to him, die faster. I wish you would just die. Just die. There, 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 mm-hmm. are, there are moments. Hurry and, up and fucking die. Yeah, individuals who, for whom it's very difficult to be part of. Um, just the, the presence of this one lone boy running past all of these American soldiers mm-hmm. and shooting at them in the beginning, it's so basically human. It's yes. so well, intense. Thank you. thank you very much because that's precisely what it's about because, you know, we didn't make a film about the Iraq War. Mm. It takes place in the Iraq War, but it's not about Iraq War. It's not about what's right and what's wrong and did Saddam have WMDs and did we screw up the invasion and did we screw up the occupation. It's not about that. All of that's in there, but it's not about that. This is just a film about us and what we're really like. And one of the greatest places to find out what we're really like is in war. Mm. And here is one. Yes, it happens to be in Iraq, but it could be any war and this moment could happen in any you know, conflict of our times. And ultimately, you know, for me, the great inspiration out of all this came when I picked up a beaten up, dog-eared old copy of Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. <laughs> a novella. This this Englishman wrote in 1896, unless I'm mistaken. Francis Ford Coppola turns it into Apocalypse Now in 79, but the story hasn't changed. Because we haven't changed. There's a light in the dark that dwells inside each and every one of us. You know, threaten a mother's child. Um, let, I, let me take you for one month and I will show you that darkness that dwells inside you. You won't believe what you'd be prepared to do. You won't believe where you will go in your heart. And you know what? It's in all of us. And all I want to do is acknowledge that. I can't quite tell if everything you know is killing you or keeping you alive. Mm, embalming. Embalming. And something's embalming me. <laughs> Since 8 o'clock this morning. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Um, 
And look, let's face it, in so many ways I'm already dead. But in so many ways, that's a wonderful thing. I mean, we should live each and every day as if we are already dead. Only then can we be free, you know? Only then when we really, you know, fight for and dedicate our, our time and our energies to the things that actually matter. So, yeah, it's kind of cool that I feel like I'm already dead. Everything else is a bonus now. Um, so hopefully it means I can... Well, I'm trying to learn how to enjoy it more, um, you know? There's a show that we're currently making for television. And I feel like calling it Happy Without Joy. Hmm. Um, because it's one of the things about trauma is that you know, in one of its worst uh, expressions, you can end up what's called anhedonic. You know, a hedonist is someone who takes great pleasure in all the sort of, you know, the naughtiness and the lusciousness of life, every sort of pleasure they're into. Someone who's anhedonic is someone who no longer can experience joy. And that's how a lot of veterans and trauma survivors end up. Because the things that used to make you smile and make you giggle, you go, ah, okay, <laughs> you know. Now, for me, I can't hear like I used to hear. I certainly can't see like I used to see. You know, all those explosions of you know, the ringing. And, and I no longer can taste food or smell because of a bombing. Um my sixth roadside bombing in Kandahar in September 4, 2009, deprived me of my sense of smell and taste. Um, so I forget the point of all of that. Oh. But it's okay. The bottom line is it's okay. Uh -huh. It really is. And you know what? Everyone who's come home from the Peloponnesian Wars, everyone who came home from World War One and World War Two and Korea and Vietnam, we all felt like this. Do you ever miss yourself from before you went? I don't know. I think he'd piss me off now. I'm going <laughs> to punch him in the throat, little <laughs> pussy. Um, so, no. Because you know what? Okay. People say, oh, do you think you stay too long? And I say, you know what? I don't think I stayed one day too long and I didn't stay, you know, I didn't leave one day too soon. And this was the price I had to pay. And this was always going to be the price that I had to pay. And I don't regret a bit of it. I regret what I put my kid through. I regret what I put my parents through. It aged my mum and my dad. I, I you know, have accelerated the end of their lives. That's a heavy fucking price. Mm. For the things I paid, I don't give a fuck. For the things that those around me paid, which is where we were starting earlier. I mean, mm -hmm. it's the ones who really pay... For, because you can dress yourself, in these, dress yourself up in these cloaks of nobility about what we do as foreign correspondents, particularly war correspondents, but it's all, it's all fatuous. You know, it's all fatuous. Can you, the ones who really pay are the ones who love us. Can you ever, do you ever spend a day without uh, any kind of um, you know say, you drugs or flashback. alcohol? Oh. Drugs or alcohol, I was going to say. I wasn't even going to go to flashbacks. Hmm. Hmm. Okay, this is where I should put my barrister cap on. Yep. And so you don't have to answer if you don't want to. I don't. You know, I exercise the fifth. No, look. Um, there was a period where I really struggled uh, coming home, and where drugs and alcohol were kind of a a band aid. It was a triage. I wrote about this, and it became famously in the international news magazine Newsweek. I was published out of New York. And the start of the story said, I should be dead, I wish I was. Which isn't correct grammar, but we went with it. <laughs> I should be dead, 
I wish I was because you know what? I really, really wished I was dead. I just wanted the pain to stop. Yeah. And so when those soldiers are killing themselves every 90 minutes, I knew exactly how they felt. Yeah. Now, for better or for worse, one of the things that got me through was just slathering myself um, in booze um, and the odd bit of drugs, anything to get me through one more day. Don't kill myself today, don't kill myself today, don't kill myself today. It's not a very healthy approach, but ultimately that worked for me um, and it got me through to the point where I decided I don't want to die. Now, the hardest part was learning how to live with that decision, mm-hmm. to live. And that's what I'm doing now, each and every day. But you know what? I'm through the eye of my needle. I feel, you know, much, much better. Yeah. There's enough reason for me to stick around. And maybe, finally, touch wood, got to be careful, you know. Um, you know, like a good Catholic, you always know that there's doom around the corner. <laughs> Say something that's going to go wrong. <laughs> But I may be about to re-engage. We'll see. What who do you mean re-engage? Knows? Well, who fucking You're not going back. No. Oh, for Christ's maybe. sake, Michael. N- no. You're not going back. No. Not to places where I'll die. No, okay. Way. But re-engage with uh, reporting well, and... Yes, with the world. Yes. Awesome. Yes. Well, you know, well, I am got just... Got your pound of flesh? I did. And you reckon? I, reckon I think two, so. Two you, and a bit. You think? Maybe. What's the time? How long has this fucking been? It's been almost an hour. That'll do me. (laughs) Jesus. Bless me, Father, for I've sinned. I came on this fucking devil woman show. Thank you so much. I've wanted to talk to you for such a long time. Well, I just also want to say that having done so much overseas and coming home, why do no Aussie people ever invite me to their parties and their openings and their things and you people go to races and have all these wonderful Do you want to come? I'll invite you. I'll go to anything. I'll invite you. Anything, ever. Okay, all right. You're on the list. Because, you know, I behave. You do? You promise? (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that the point? know what the Isn't point Isn't it Hunter S. Thompson at the Kentucky Derby? Okay. All right. Well, I will definitely anyway. invite you somewhere. Right, so I don't go, go anywhere, but I'll, I'll go yeah. somewhere just, just to take just you. Just send me the invites. Okay. Yeah, don't go. It'd be best. All right. Um, but anyway, thank you so much. Thank you so much. I the movie's you. amazing. And um, I would like to catch up with you again when you've been re-engaged and with whatever it is you're doing, okay? Oh, yes. It's going to be frightening. We'll have so many stories to tell. That was Michael Ware. His documentary, Only the Dead, is now available on iTunes in Australia. As I'm sure you've picked up from the conversation, it is not for the faint-hearted. It is an extraordinary document. And uh, if you're like me, if you're a person who would rather know the truth and sort of see it with their own eyes, then, then this is the one for you. Thanks so much for downloading. Thank you to Kieran Simpson, Simon Bags, and Sonia Jashan, my little team here at the Nitty Gritty. You can always find me on Facebook. See you in two weeks. Bye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.